Well, turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to 1 Peter. As I've said before, it's a little bittersweet. It always is when we get to the close of a book, when we've spent so much time in it together, and we've not only grown in our understanding of God's truth individually, but in particular as a church, we've grown in the ability to collectively, as a local body, live out that truth and communicate it in a way that glorifies God and ultimately results in the salvation of the lost. So I'm going to read to you from chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This passage is so important for you and for me and for our church that we would readily and passionately understand the heart of Peter in this book as it's given to him by God, that you and I would look closely at his final words, understanding how we as a church can more faithfully and passionately and humbly reflect these four things, faithfulness, grace, love, and peace. The title of the message this morning, Faithfulness, Grace, Love, and Peace. By God's choice, through discipleship, we are to stand firm in God's grace so that we will enjoy mutual love and peace. Point number one, learn from the usefulness of a faithful brother. We're talking here specifically about Silvanus, otherwise known as Silas. Who was he? Why does Peter refer to him as a trustworthy brother? Peter declares that he has written briefly, but boldly, regarding the grace of God, calling the elect to stand firm in that grace, and he has considered Silas to be trustworthy to the degree that he would be the bearer of that letter, that he would deliver it faithfully, that he would deliver it accurately, that it wouldn't be compromised or poisoned in any way, but that that truth would be delivered to the saints who needed not just a word of encouragement, but they needed this foundational truth upon which to rest. And Peter refers to them as the elect. And then he calls them to be not surprised when they experience suffering to acknowledge that it is the will of God that they suffer. And when they do, they are in turn to do that which pleases the Creator. It's a little bit alarming at first glance. Number one, to be aware of God's sovereignty in the Scripture, much less the reality of what it actually means. As a Christian matures, he grows in his dependence upon and his delight in God's sovereignty. But as he resists that, He separates himself from that which would actually bring peace and love. As we acknowledge Peter's words here, we must acknowledge that he found a faithful brother who was willing to deliver the letter, and we must be people who are willing to deliver that letter with the same degree of accuracy, not whitewashing it, delivering it in the same grace and love and peace that Sylvanus delivered it with. Silvanus was considered a leader among the church. He was a prophet. Again, he was trustworthy. He was a preacher of God's word. 
In Acts 15, at the Council of Jerusalem, his trustworthiness led to him being among those who would deliver a letter from the apostles to the Gentile Christians at Antioch. He had a track record of being faithful and delivering correspondence. In Acts 16, Paul and Silas were ministering in Thyatira, and a woman named Lydia was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things of Paul. Those are God's words. God opened her heart. She didn't open her heart to him. God opened her heart. God saved her. She and her household were baptized, and she ministered to them in her home. Then Satan sent a demon-possessed slave girl to irritate them. And in verse 19, but when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. The crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore off their robes and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. Don't let yourself pass over that too quickly. This was what led to the ability later to refer to them as those who had risked their lives. Paul risked his life many times, and Silas was right there with him doing the same. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer realized what had happened, he planned to take his own life. But Silas was involved in the salvation of that jailer. He and Paul had persuaded him by the work of the Holy Spirit in such a way that he said these words, What must I do to be saved? Silas ministered effectively with Paul further in Acts 17. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. And via Silas' ministry, there was a substantial response to God's word. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word of God with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. These were not people who were sitting at home doing their own private little Bible study, trying to determine what God has said in the Scripture. They were sitting under sound teaching, and then secondarily, in an ancillary way, they went and studied the Scriptures together to determine whether or not the teaching they were receiving was so, and they determined that it was so. Silas had great influence by the power of the Holy Spirit on those who would receive the Word of God in that way. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. This is a crucial text because what's happening here is that Silas and Timothy are declaring themselves to have a specific role in the body of Christ that enables Paul to minister freely, no longer making tents for a living. And the result was that Jews were saved through that faithful understanding of the diverse necessity of the giftedness of the body of Christ, each person fulfilling his role 
that should have impact on your thinking and my thinking right now, this very moment, about the degree to which you and I are faithful to the giftedness that the Spirit of God has granted to us individually that we would be collectively involved in a local church, just as Silas was effectively involved to the degree that Peter could say about him, he's a faithful brother. 2 Corinthians 1, for the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but is yes in him. For as many as are the promises of God in him, they are yes. Therefore also through him is our amen to the glory of God through us. In other words, Silvanus's ministry led to the ability of others listening to be able to discern their yes from their yes and their no from their no. In other words, they were committed to integrity. They were willing not only to do what they said they would do, but they were known by it because the God that they serve and love and trust is known by it. He's a God whose yes is yes and his no is no. In 1 Thessalonians 1, Paul, in representation of Timothy and Silvanus, says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. He's talking about himself and Silvanus and Timothy. We make mention of you in our prayers, giving thanks to God, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. You want to know whether or not you're of the elect? This is how. You exhibit faithfulness. The person who doesn't want discipleship, he doesn't want to be involved in the body of Christ in such a way that the body could say he's trustworthy, he's reliable. That person should really be concerned about his election. Peter says very specifically, be certain of your calling and your election in 2 Peter 1. And then he explains how to do that. If you want to know how to do that, go to 2 Peter chapter 1. It's very clear. This is not a secondary unimportant doctrine. It is the basis for Peter's letter. It is the basis for all of Paul's writing. As he writes here regarding the ministry that he and Timothy and Silvanus had to the Thessalonians, he writes in such a way that he says, I can confirm God's election in your life because of your faithfulness. Can you imagine hating the doctrine of election? Sure you can because you probably did, but you grew up. And you realize that it permeates the Scripture. And it is, in fact, the basis of spiritual growth. It's not just the basis of spiritual birth. It is the basis of spiritual growth. You wonder why you're not growing if you continue to fight basic doctrine, the most primary doctrine about God's character and what he repeatedly says about himself. You fight basic, essential, fundamental, rudimentary truth. No wonder you're frustrated if, in fact, you are. But if you're not, it is because you have been humbled by this truth and you are grateful for it. You are willing, even as Silas did in delivering this letter, to deliver truth with grace as he did, to be compassionate and patient and willing to allow the Lord to produce that change in people's hearts. There's a second faithful brother to which Peter alludes by the hand of Silas, and that is John Mark. And without looking through those texts again, as we did two weeks ago, let me assure you that at one point, it was pretty clear to Paul that John Mark was not worthy of ministering with. And so he he parted from him. Barnabas took John Mark, and Paul took Silas. 
Silas being considered to be a worthy brother, a faithful brother, and yet about John Mark, he said he's not ready. And that changed. And one of the last requests Paul made before he died, he honored John Mark for his faithfulness. See, that is what you and I should be willing to think about every day. When you go frustrated or discouraged and you wonder why in the world am I not getting spiritual traction, look at the life of John Mark. Look at the life of Paul. Plenty of people throughout the scripture, but John Mark is one about whom Peter, through the hand of Silas, could say he's a trustworthy brother. Having learned from the usefulness of a faithful brother, point number two, point number two, stand firm in the grace of a sovereign God. That's the point of the letter. That's the point of the letter. Here where Peter uses these words, stand firm in it. What is he talking about? He's not talking about some confused, ambiguous expression of grace. He says, stand firm in the true grace of God. The true grace of God. And you can think of it this way. The true grace of God is expressed in the letter of 1 Peter. All that Peter has said in this letter is an expression of God's grace. We've had a rich, rich, all-important time this last week in our discipleship groups. If you missed this study, you missed the most important study, except for the one that's coming up in two weeks. Get with someone and go through that study in preparation for the one that's coming up to understand that it is by greater grace that you overcome great sin is so very important. To rest in that grace is to believe, first of all, that you are saved not only by grace, but you are saved by grace alone. You are saved by grace alone. This was a massive revelation for John Bunyan. He was so frustrated in his Christian life because he had not locked on to the reality that he was saved by grace alone. He was convinced he was saved by grace, but was convinced that he had contributed something to his salvation, and therefore he proclaimed that in that he was so very, very frustrated. And when it dawned on him, when the light came on, that it was by grace and grace alone, he was free to actually grow spiritually and trust in a sovereign God. This is what we've emphasized this last week in our discipleship. This is what Peter is emphasizing here. Stand firm in the true grace of God. See that? You say, well, how can he say this when back in chapter 1, verse 3, he has called these people the elect whom God has chosen in eternity past? Because that's how God operates. God operates by grace. He freely grants forgiveness, and therefore it's called grace. If you were involved, if you somehow resurrected yourself from the dead, that's not grace. That's merit. That's you doing something to achieve something. But as you see throughout 1 Peter, this call here to stand firm in that grace of God is defined by sovereignty. God in his all-powerfulness has freely granted grace. And therefore, God and God alone gets the glory. And so we say this morning to you, stand firm in that grace. Be willing to stand firm in the sovereign grace of a loving, gracious God and stop communicating a confusing message to those who otherwise might be saved in your presence by telling them that they have to do something. Plead with God to give you the grace and the articulate 
ability to communicate truth in such a way and in such a loving manner that those that the Holy Spirit is going to save, those that the Father is drawing unto the Son, would exhibit that faith in your presence and you'd have the great joy to actually see it unfold. Anything else is a frustrating false gospel. Stand firm. Stand firm in this grace. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Peter says, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is a salvation of grace and grace alone. There's not a hint of man's effort. He says then in verse 13, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You want to grow spiritually? Keep your mind locked on the grace of God. You want to be frustrated? Upturn that biblical fundamental truth and take credit for what God and God alone could have done. 1 Peter 3, verse 7, You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. A fellow heir of the grace of life. This is just basic life. He's not talking here about spiritual life. He's not talking about a life that's changed by the gospel. This could be enjoyed by any believer who's married to an unbeliever. And in fact, that's the context. Enjoy the grace of human life. See, that's God's grace. To enjoy a spouse, the pleasures and the joys of being married, even to a person who has rejected Jesus Christ. That's the context. It's God's grace. But there's so much more for the Christian. First Peter 5, verse 5, You younger men likewise be subject to your elders. Be subject to the protection of the elders, the shepherds, the shepherds who protect the flock. I have five children. It's become really obvious to me that in certain circumstances where I'm trying to protect them, they don't like it. Jax and I were at Daddy and Me Night at his little school. At the end, we had an opportunity to purchase some things. And I walked out of there with a pen with a goldfish on the top of it. When you squeeze it, its eyes bug out. It cost me three and a half dollars. He better hang on to that pen and take good care of it. Jax wanted everything. In fact, he pulled one book off the shelf and said to me, Daddy, I love this book so much. I said, really? What's it about? I love it so much. 
you can't buy everything for your kids. Eventually, there'll be no inheritance. That's just one example, and you who are parents, and you who are not, you understand this. One of our roles as parents is to protect our children. One of the roles as a shepherd is to protect people, and many times, interestingly, sheep are not aware that some of the things we're protecting them from. We, we, we really want to protect you from a low view of the church. We want to protect you from a low view of God's people that says, yeah, I can take it or not, whatever. Yeah, I'll do some of this, not all of it, whatever. We want to protect you from that because that's not what God blesses. God doesn't bless those who dip their toe in the church. By the way, God doesn't bless those who define sovereignty as God being in control of the good things, not the bad things. God doesn't bless that. We want to protect you from that. I could go on and on and on and on and on. But here where Peter calls the young men to subject themselves to the elders, this is to set the standard. And, and this isn't, what you know this, what Peter is not saying is give total control of your lives to the elders so that they can really revel in their control over you. Sadly, because of the influence of Roman Catholicism from the 1500s, even to this day, some people think that that's what it is, and therefore, they won't subject themselves to the elders. They're glad to subject themselves to the people who won't confront their low view of the church. They won't go so far as to subject themselves to those who, by God's design, he's put in a position of protection. So clear. Peter, so clear here. He says, clothe yourselves with humility. See, this is a matter of humility. You say, I'm not going to humble myself until I'm convinced that that guy's humbled himself, and I'm the one who defines humility. He says, humble yourselves with humility toward one another, toward the body. And really, it's not ultimately about humbling yourselves before the leadership. It's about humbling yourselves before the body and serving the body. That's how you prove your humility. Your willingness to consider others, Philippians 2, as more important than yourself by making a higher priority out of them than you. See, God's opposed to the proud. Can you see how as a shepherd, if my heart is right, if my heart is really in the right place, if I'm genuinely devoted to Christ, devoted to the church, willing to humble myself, if the leaders in our church, the shepherds in our church are truly characterized that way, and I, I can tell you with all certainty that they are, if that is true, can you not imagine that this passage would have great influence on our thinking and our prayer together and our efforts to instruct one another and to learn together what it is to be an elder. Can you not imagine that this would have great influence on us, this reality that the body is to humble themselves, to clothe themselves even toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud. Can you imagine that if a man loves the body of Christ, he would want the individuals in the body of Christ to humble themselves? To not be proud because God gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. Can you imagine that as a shepherd, he would truly, truly want, although sometimes the message might get twisted, and there might be those who would say, I don't know, it seems like they just want to control us. You can see how both might take place, but can you imagine that if a shepherd is truly qualified biblically, that his desire, his passion would be that the body of Christ would experience grace? They would long for the grace of God and that they would be willing to humble themselves toward one another 
so that God would no longer oppose them. See, God does oppose the believer. He opposes the believer who refuses to humble himself. But he gives grace to the believer who will humble himself. Peter's a shepherd. Peter knew what it was to shepherd the flock because he was shepherded by the chief shepherd. He knew that there were times where Jesus said things to him that he didn't like, but he looked back on it and could easily see that that was Jesus' effort to shepherd me out of my foolishness and my sin. Jesus knew what was coming. Jesus knew that Peter would deny him three times. Peter, in his love for Christ, said, well, no, (laughs) no. And yet Peter knew there were pockets of pride large enough that it could certainly result in that. Peter would have known that about himself if he had been honest. He says, stand firm, Peter, here. Stand firm in this true grace. Stand firm in this true grace. How do you experience grace? It's by humbling yourself. It's by humbling yourself, and specifically toward the body, and even more specifically under the leadership of the elders. And he says this, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen. Babylon, probably a code word for Rome. Uh, Peter, knowing that if certain authorities were to intercept his letter, that it could mean trouble for the church in Rome. Very likely a, a code term here. But he's certainly speaking of those who are chosen. He says, likewise, those who are chosen. He says, they send you greetings. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen. This is an expression of the sovereign grace of God. Oddly, one of the most unpopular doctrines, not in the world, in the church. And why? I fault pastors, to be very candid and blunt. I fault men in the pulpit who so desire to be popular with those in the church that they refuse to graciously express what has come as a result of diligent study. And by the way, it doesn't take a lot of diligence to see the sovereignty of God throughout the Scripture. It takes a simple reading. A friend of mine told me when his father-in-law said, you know what, you're you're struggling with the grace of God through election. Read the Old Testament and call me. And he did. And he said, oh dear, how did I miss it? He simply read the Bible. The God of grace is a sovereign God who is a God of love. And if you can't rest in this grace, you need to surround yourself with people who will, with grace, walk you to the place where you can. I was watching a little short video after the Master's Seminary graduation Sunday night, and someone approached John MacArthur and asked him, what would you say to these men who've just graduated and now they're ready to go out and pastor? And John said, well, they're trained, um, they're ready, they know the languages, they're skilled, and what I would say to them is be patient. Be patient. So I have no problem being patient with those who reject the sovereign grace of God. 
as long as they're willing to keep listening to me talk about it. Eventually, they'll come around. Eventually, they'll come around, and I won't have to twist anybody's arm. You and I must stand firm in this grace. We must stand firm in the sovereign grace of God. True Bible students will get there. How? By God's grace. That's how. Point number three. Demonstrate your shared love with the body of Christ. Demonstrate your shared love with the body of Christ. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. See that? Those who are chosen, not just those in Babylon or probably Rome, but those who he knows by name. And he says specifically about Mark, he sends you greetings. See, we ought to be able to do this with one another. And we ought to be able to express affection. Now, don't be looking for a kiss after the service. (laughs) But this was common in this day. This was not unusual. And in some places in our culture, it's common. You say, well, do we let culture determine what Scripture teaches? No, never, exclamation point. But we do acknowledge that the Bible was written in certain cultures, And Peter, being sensitive to those cultures, said, do that which makes sense in your culture. Greet one another with a kiss of love. He expresses greetings from the elect to the elect. That's one expression. But amongst yourselves, be affectionate. Don't be afraid to show your love for one another. You say, well, but wait a minute. What if there are, you know, What if there are people in the church and we're not even sure whether or not they're believers? That's why we have church membership. And as you saw this morning, four people subjected themselves to God's word and said, I want to be affirmed by a church that I can affirm. That's why we do that. We do that for your protection that you would be able to freely express your love for the elect. That you could say with confidence, I am willing and I, in fact, practice a demonstration of my shared love with the body of Christ. Peter is specific about one particular group among the elect who are undergoing persecution along with them. And they can relate to that. It doesn't take much effort to look on the internet, watch the news, and see that there are specific groups of people across the world who are of the elect, who are undergoing persecution that you and I can't fathom. How do we minister to them? How do they minister to us? If we have the opportunity, and certainly we do, then we, as a local body, will send those who have been affirmed, who have passionately and officially, willingly said, I affirm this local church. I am a member of this local body, and I affirm my affection for those in this local body 
regularly, not just with a distant, hey, how are you? But if appropriate, a hug. And if appropriate, a kiss. And if appropriate, a handshake. But there is some clear, tangible, tactile, convincing expression of affection. And if friends, if you're withholding that from anyone in this local body who has been affirmed as a member of this local body, you must address that today. I told you last week during the Lord's table that before you give your offering according to our Lord, you must go to that person who you believe has something against you. You must. It's a command of the Lord. How can you greet one another with a kiss of love or whatever form of affection comes natural to you and those with whom you are comfortable? How can you express that affection if you haven't certainly expressed your love for that local body in a way that every single person in that local body can affirm? What are they supposed to think? They don't know what to think. They can't know what to think. But if you can certainly affirm your affection, then that local body can affirm you. And we together will be most maximally effective for Christ. Point number four. Point number four. Rest in the peace of being reconciled to God. He says, peace to all of you who are in Christ. He starts with this little phrase, or at least some semblance of it. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Who's he saying this to? Specifically, he says it to the elect. To his words. Those who are chosen. He then says, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Not in some stingy portion. Not that it would be a rationed measure of peace, but that you would have fullness of peace. And according to Paul the Apostle, this peace comes from justification in Romans 5, 1 to 2. You say, I kind of like the church, I kind of don't. Not if you're resting in the doctrine of justification. That God justifies those who express faith in Jesus Christ and in his substitutionary atoning death and in his new life-giving resurrection? See, when your peace rests there, you will do a whole lot less attempting to get the speck out of other people's eyes while you got a log in your own. When you will rest in a solid soteriology, a legitimate biblical expression of how salvation works. You will become a person of grace. and People will know it. And you will have an eternally lasting impact on those who will hear truth. Rest in the peace of being reconciled to God through Christ. Peter says, peace to all of you who are in Christ. And this, as I said, is just a reiteration of what he said in the beginning of the letter. May you have peace to the fullest. May you have maximum peace. May your life be marked by peace. When difficulty comes, legitimate difficulty, when pain comes, when tribulation comes, when confusion comes, you turn 
not to the desire for peace. And so when you're experiencing difficulty, you just say things like, pray for my peace. Or when someone else is experiencing difficulty, you might say, well, I, you know, let's just pray that God gives them peace. You won't do that. You won't do that. You will graciously and lovingly take them to the gospel of a sovereign God of grace. And you will say to them, you can trust in this. And you know, you can say this to someone who's trusted in Christ. You can say to them with confidence, you know that when you understood the gospel and that it was God by his sovereign grace in his love and his mercy for you who granted you eternal life, you experienced the fullness of peace at least for a moment. You can say that with confidence. You know it's true. You've experienced it. We enjoy an experiential theology. We enjoy an experiential theology. Theology that leads to the worship of a God who is actually in control. A God who, while he is in control, freely extends his grace to all of those who will repent and believe in his gospel. This is why our singing ministry, our music ministry is absolutely vibrant because our music rests in, it doesn't just focus on, it rests in, it marinates in the truth of a sovereign, gracious God. And that's a God worthy of worship. It's a God who grants peace, a peace that you can rest in. I tell you, rest in the peace of being reconciled to God in Christ. You can't wish peace to someone who doesn't have Christ. And you certainly can't effectively hope for peace for someone who rests in a Christ who only supplied almost enough for their salvation. That's not a peace-providing salvation. It's the constant, tenuous condition. This is why Arminianism, in its origin, in its fifth point, expressed in their minds the fact that you can lose your salvation. True Arminianism wholeheartedly believes that you can lose your salvation because you partially earned it. A doctrine that's rooted in a sovereign grace of God that provides peace for those who will repent and believe in the gospel is a doctrine that disallows the loss of your salvation, and therefore you have peace. You have peace in what God determined in eternity past. You know that it will come to pass. Many times when a difficult trial has arrived in someone's life, you'll hear someone say, Lord, just give them peace. Please don't pray that for the person who doesn't have peace. Please don't pray that they would have peace. Please pray that they would have a serious dose and a legitimate understanding of God's grace because that's what leads to peace. That's what leads to peace. For the believer, a lack of peace reveals itself in anxiety that is only resolved by thanksgiving and a willingness to cast that anxiety upon the Lord, a Lord who is sovereign, a Lord who is a God of grace. You can't tell that to an unbeliever. Where does this peace come from? What is its origin? Paul says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in hope of the glory of God. This requires a high view of Scripture. It requires a high view of God's Word. It requires a willingness to believe what God's Word says and not twist it. 
It requires a willingness to humble oneself under the the sovereignty of God is displayed in an inerrant, infallible, all-sufficient scripture that teaches the responsibility of man while teaching the sovereignty of God. It requires a willingness to believe that both are true and a willingness to abandon the pride that leads to a deduction, a human deduction that requires that they make perfect sense to me because I'm in control of all things. You know that in 2 Peter 1, we are told that the scripture is not subject to your interpretation. Men moved by God arrived at the Holy Spirit's interpretation. When you think of the peace that you and I are called to have and we are freely granted, as you minister, do you attempt to counsel and serve others who are frustrated? Specifically, those who are really good at hiding or think they are good at hiding their frustration. Your best effort is to grow in your understanding of this sovereign God of grace. That's your best effort. That's your best tool. It's your best focus for being equipped to help others. Think of the person of Peter. Think of the apostle Peter who abandoned the faith. He didn't go completely apostate, as did Judas. But Peter denied Christ, as we mentioned earlier. And what was it that brought Peter back to a faith and a practice of that faith that enabled him to be effective in other people's lives, even your life and my life today? He says, stand firm in the true grace of God. Be willing to understand grace. Be willing to live with grace. Be willing to rest in grace. Be willing to operate with grace. And in so doing, rest in the peace that comes from that grace. I'll leave you with these final words from our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who in Matthew 5, verse 9, said this, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. How are the sons of God known? How are the people of God known? How are the children of God known? By teaching a grace that leads to peace. Peace that is the result of God's sovereign work that he willing to draw some unto his son that they would be reconciled to God, who, as you know, hates sin. We heard it many times this morning from the baptismal waters. He is holy. He hates sin. He condemns sin. And yet he graciously provided the sacrificial lamb, his son, who took on that sin and in so doing received the wrath that you and I deserve. And that work is why you and I can and should have fullness of peace. As you meditate upon the gospel of Jesus Christ, you can be certain that God will provide this peace for you in such a way that you will actually become a peacemaker. But be forewarned, be forewarned. When you teach the true doctrine of salvation that leads to the peace of those that God has saved, you will receive resistance. You will not only receive resistance from unbelievers, you will receive resistance from the elect. So what do you do? What do you do? Rest in the peace 
God has granted through his son to you and be patient and be willing to extend that to others.